uh, as we have been for the past several weeks, are going to be in the Gospel of Mark. So uh, pull out your Bibles. Uh, towards the end of your Bible, you find the New Testament. And at the very beginning of the New Testament, you have four Gospels, Matthew and then Mark. And so we will be in Mark chapter 7. Uh, if you uh, don't have your own Bible, there are pew Bibles uh, in the pew back in front of you. And uh, Mark chapter 7 falls on page 818. And so Mark chapter 7 is where we're going to be. We have uh, been in the midst of a series called Follow Me in the Gospel of Mark as Jesus uh, gives his universal call to discipleship. He calls us to, first of all, to, to trust in him, and then he calls us to follow him, and then he calls us to join him even on our way to the cross. And so uh, part six of Follow Me, Jesus says, trust me, I push the limits. Trust me, I push the limits. And so as you're finding your way uh, in the Gospel of Mark to Mark chapter 7, uh, I'd invite you to go ahead and do that. And uh, let's pray, and we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for a wonderful morning. Uh, thank you for these uh, uh, people who are gathered here um, to worship you, to give of their offerings and, and of their time and of their hearts uh, to be laid bare before you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and that you would speak to us through the word that you inspired um, in the life of Christ. And I pray that we would learn uh, from his discipleship training and from uh, the, the training that, he, that he's giving to his disciples. We today, as we follow Christ, I pray that we too would learn uh, how to follow him and how to live for him. And so, um, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you help protect my mouth that I would say, say things that are accurate and true? Uh, and would you come and accompany the text that you um, inspired and that you would speak to our hearts in a powerful and clear way. And so we invite your presence, Jesus. We ask that you would also be honored as we look into your life, into your ministry, into your words. Um, may we love you more because of it, and may we follow you more devotedly um, because of it. Father, we thank you for this, and uh, we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, most of you know, but for those of you who don't, um, Shelly and I have a couple, a couple children. Uh, our oldest is, uh, his name is Asher, and uh, he just turned three in December. Um, our youngest, her name is Piper, and uh, she is, oh, about eight months now, and uh, in the midst of cutting teeth. So that means we got bad sleep <laughs> last night. Um, uh, but I want to share a story about uh, what we've learned so far about uh, kids. We are very novice when it comes to children. Uh, neither Shelly nor I had much experience working with children before we had our own. So needless to say, it's been a bit of a crash course, and it continues to be a bit of a crash course for us. Uh, one of the observations that we've made um, is that as Asher has uh, gone through uh, two and has just recently turned three, uh, that the, the phrase terrible twos doesn't exactly always apply just when they're two. <laughs> In fact, he just turned three, and I would say he's a little bit more terrible now uh, than he was in his terrible twos. Not that he's a bad kid. He's a very, very good kid. Uh, but what we're finding out is that um, around this time, uh, I guess, kids start to kind of push the limits. They start to push their limits, and they start to push your buttons as a parent. Uh, but he's starting to do things like, more frequently, when we ask him or tell him to do something, say, no, I don't want to, <laughs> or no, you do it. He's starting to test the limits, to push the boundaries. He's starting to do things like just waiting 
to see how long can I wait to respond in obedience before I get disciplined. He's pushing the limits. He's uh, pushing the limits of our patience, and certainly he's pushing the limits of our demand for him to be obedient to us. Um, Those of you with little children, that's pretty common, isn't it? At two or three, we don't have an oddball. I've also heard that when kids become teenagers, that they begin to push the limits again. So I guess we go through it then and then now. But um, right now, we're in the midst of our three-year-old starting to kind of push those limits. And and the reason I share that is because this morning as we continue in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see another person pushing some limits, pushing some buttons. But this time, it's going to be not uh, a toddler pushing the limits of his parents. Jesus is actually going to be pushing the limits. In fact, he's going to be pushing the limits of his disciples. Remember, if you recall, we are in kind of uh, round two of discipleship training. Uh, Last week, we looked at round one of discipleship training where Jesus said, trust me, I can use you. And so in this point in his life, he's beginning to emphasize and to really invest in the 12 disciples who will follow uh, after him and, and, and produce the Christian faith, essentially. And so he's really investing in them Last week, he wanted them to learn that they can be used of him. This week, what he's doing is he's pushing their limits. He's pushing their understanding of his ministry, and he's pushing the understanding of their future ministry. What we're going to see, essentially, in Mark chapter 7, is that Jesus is going to initiate ministry outside of the Jewish lands homelands. And he's going to initiate ministry outside of those who are Jewish. Now to us, that may not be any big deal, but in that context, in those days, this was a huge deal for Jesus to engage someone who is not Jewish ethnically or religiously. It was a huge faux pas. It was a huge limit. And Jesus wants to teach his disciples then, and he wants to teach his disciples now that we should and can push the limits of our ministry. And so if you uh, are jotting down notes, jot down a couple things. There are uh, basically a couple sections that we're going to look at. In verses 1 through 23, we're going to get an explanation, an explanation of how Jesus pushed the limits. And so he's going to explain the theological basis as to why he's going to push the limit to the Gentiles. And then starting in verse 24 through the end of the chapter, uh, not, we will not get an explanation, but we'll get examples. We're going to get two examples of how Jesus pushed the limits and ministered to non-Jews. So that's essentially where we're going. We see an explanation and then we see examples in round two of discipleship training. And so Jesus this morning is going to say to his disciples and he's going to say to us, trust me, I push the limits. Trust me, I push the limits of ministry, and you should too. So before we do that, as we have uh, done before, I want to watch Max McLean uh, essentially uh, narrate chapter 7, doing a wonderful job. And so here's Max McLean, uh, essentially uh, verbatim from the scriptures, dramatizing Mark chapter 7. So let's watch this together. Some Pharisees and some teachers of the law who had come down from Jerusalem, stood round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with unclean, that is, ceremonially unwashed hands. The Pharisees and all the Jews, they did not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders, instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, 
Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, the people honor me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and if anyone curses his father or mother, he must be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise receive from me is korban. Korban is a gift devoted to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, thus you nullify the word of God by your traditions that you've handed down. And you do many things like this. Then he called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, understand this. Nothing outside of a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. When he left the crowd into the house, his disciples asked Jesus about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean by going into him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, then out his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. It is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed... Malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Jesus left that place and he went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and he did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. And she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want. He told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and give it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. The woman left found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought a man who was deaf and could hardly talk and they begged Jesus to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears. Then he spit and he touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephava, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. 
The more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, during those days... Right, Mark chapter 7. So let's jump into the text. First of all, we see the explanation of pushing the limits. Jesus is going to explain why he's going to push and why he can push the limits of his ministry to non-Jews. So let's start in verse 1, uh, uh, 1 through 23. Actually, in the, verse, uh, in the first 13 verses, what we see is that Jesus, he begins to explain why he's going to do this, and he begins by essentially redefining for his hearers, by re- redefining for uh, both the Pharisees who were there And in addition to his disciples specifically, he is going to redefine what truly defiles us before God. Hopefully you caught that, and we're going to read it here in a second. But he's going to say, this is what real defilement is. This is what real sin is. This is what dirty is. This is what being clean is. And so he begins by redefining what is dirty and what is clean. Let's read this together, starting in verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come Uh, come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled. That is, they were unwashed. Parentheses. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are a mere human invention. You have, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandment of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Kids, just pay attention to that. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or their mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your own tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. In this opening section, Jesus goes about redefining what is clean and what is dirty. Um, uh, A story from when I first got married. Um, I got married when I was 24, and uh, my wife was 25, and so I had lived uh, kind of on my own as a bachelor, a single bachelor for some, I don't know, six, seven years at that point after high school. And uh, there are certain ways that you live when you're a single guy. Uh, single men, you remember that time when you were single. And you had certain, certain habits, certain things that you would do. Um, well, one of the things that, that I did, was, of course, was I washed my own clothes. Um, but to kind of save money, I was in seminary. Things were tight, you know. Quarters here and there can, uh, can, get a little, uh, can get a little tight. So one of the things that I did is I defined what dirty clothes was, and I defined what clean clothes were. So the way I defined it was simply this. It was the smell test, and it was the look test, right? So if you looked at the clothes, and there were no obvious stains, okay? So check. You passed number one. You passed the look test. 
It's clean if you don't have any obvious stains. Number two was the smell test. If you pass the look test, then you start smelling around and you sniff around. And if, and if it smells good, in my book, it was clean, even if you have worn it before. Once or twice before, maybe even, it was clean, right? That's how I defined clean and dirty. And you know, I didn't do uh, laundry all that much. <laughs> um, and I saved some money, right? Um, and, and then I got married, okay? And guess what happened? Well, I had to redefine what I thought dirty was and what I thought clean was because my wife, well, she had a different definition of what dirty clothes were and what clean clothes were. I, I told her what, what my system was. Actually, uh, she, when we first got married, she's like, Trey, I'm noticing this trend. I'm doing the laundry, and I have like twice as many clothes as you do when I'm doing the laundry. Why is that? And so I told her, you know, what I just told you, and she's like, this is not going to happen anymore. <laughs> and so let's just say she helped me redefine what dirty really was. I, I, I needed a, a more profound understanding of what being dirty or unclean was. Well, that's exactly what Jesus was doing in verses 1 through 13. Uh, the Jews and his disciples, they needed a, a, a more deeper, more richer understanding of what defilement was before God, of what being dirty before God was, because for the Pharisees, it was purely external. It was, did you do the ceremonial washing, which was not necessarily biblical. It was just something that they passed down. It was a tradition, but they consider it just as binding as the Bible itself. And so they said, this is, this is what defiles you. And Jesus goes about and says, no, 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 that's not what defiles you. And so we're going to read uh, about that in a second. Now, Dr. Constable here, I think he states the, the issue, the debate clearly, right? They're not washing their hands, that is his disciples, before they eat. He says this, Pharisees customarily wash themselves after visiting the marketplace. Notice that. After visiting the marketplace to rid themselves of the defilement that contact with Gentiles produced. Gentiles are non-Jews. Most Jews regarded breaking these traditions as sin. And so here's what's going on. His followers are not doing this ceremonial washing. They most likely went to the marketplace. They got food. They're eating their food, and they're not going through this ritual uh, washing that was intended to wash away defilement from non-Jews. You see what's going on? And Jesus then defends, essentially, why they can do that. But before he does that, he, he essentially says, you know what, you're not obeying the Bible, you're obeying tradition. You're obeying extra-biblical added rules, and when you do that, you actually break God's law. That's what the example of Corbin is all about. So he addresses the issue of authority. They thought the authority was the tradition. Jesus says, no, the authority is God's word. And then he goes on to explain, and this is why my disciples can eat their uh, food without washing their hands. And he describes that in verses 14 through 23. He gets to the issue. He actually answers their question. Why, it, why does it not defile them? And he defines what true dirty is. Starting in verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and, and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it, it, what, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart but into their stomach and then out of the body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, 
What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is uh, from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from, out, from inside and defile a person. And so Jesus is explaining why he can push the limits in such a way. Essentially, he says, you know what? If you eat food that is, uh, that is defiled by non-Jewish people, it doesn't really defile you. Defile you. It's, not, it's not sin. It doesn't make you dirty because it's coming from outside of you, and then it leaves your body. We'll leave it at that, right? But then he says, it's, what, it's, what, it's what's in the heart. Notice the emphasis on the heart. That food that is dirty, it doesn't, doesn't reach your heart. The heart produces all sorts of evil things, and that is what defiles us before God. And so in short, in the first section here, verses 1 through 23, he's explaining why he's going to push the limits of his ministry. Notice, he's debating over the issue of, does contact with a non-Jew defile you? And the overwhelming answer that Jesus is giving the crowd, and specifically his disciples, is no. (laughs) No, it doesn't. And then, what is he going to do? He's going to illustrate that. He's going to give two examples. Mark's going to give us two examples of how Jesus then pushed those ministry limits. This must have been huge for the 12, that he would even say that. He's pushing the limits of their understanding of tradition versus the Bible. He's pushing their understanding of non-Jews and if they defile the, the, the Jewish person. He's then going to push their understanding of his ministry and of their future ministry. Because remember, these guys, he's training them for when he is dead and when he rises and when he ascends, he's going to leave the faith, Christianity, to these guys. And he's going to say, the gospel should go where, church? Just to the Jews? No, it's supposed to go to everyone. It's supposed to go even to the Gentiles. And so this is a bit of a preview. He's training the 12 for what they're going to be doing. He's pushing their ministry limits. So let's, let's look at these two examples in the time that we have remaining. Starting in verse 24, two examples. The first one is what we'll call the Syrophoenician woman, and that's just a designation as to where she's from. Let's read that account in verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to, visit, uh, went to the vicinity of Tyre. <clears throat> he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence s- secret. He wanted to go incognito. That did not work. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek. Notice the emphasis. The woman was a Greek, born in Syria, Phoenicia. So she is not a Jew. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon had gone. So in this first example, Jesus is pushing the limits of his ministry. Now, first of all, he goes to this region of Tyre, which was a non-Jewish Jewish city, and you saw the map, uh, but the point is that this must have been incredibly uncomfortable for the disciples. I mean, they may have never gone uh, into that region. This was, uh, contact with non-Jews was just not what they would do. And so this was crazy uncomfortable. And then you have this account 
of Jesus healing this woman from uh, this region. Interestingly enough, uh, a first century Jewish historian by the name of Josephus says this about people from this region. He calls them, quote, notoriously our bitterest enemies. So let's just say these two groups, the Jews and the people in this vicinity, they didn't quite get along, but this is where Jesus goes and he's pushing the limits of his ministry. Uh, to summarize what's going on in this, uh, this dialogue, essentially, this woman comes to him, says, would you please heal my daughter? He then responds to her because he wants her to realize that there's a Jewish priority on his ministry, although it's not, prim- it's not only Jewish. But he says, there's a Jewish priority while I'm here on earth. And he likens the Jews and his ministry to them as children at a table who get fed first, and they get fed before the animals in the house. So I don't, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything, but uh, how many of you just think ha- have pets inside the house? Uh, we growing up had pets inside the house. We had two little dogs, and uh, my parents still have one of those dogs uh, to this day. Was mine. Now it's theirs, right? Um, but uh, this, uh, they're, house, they're house pets, right? Now, I don't know if this ever happened in your house, but growing up, we would be sitting at the dinner table and we would be eating, and the dog would be doing uh, this to the table or to our leg the whole time right, or jumping, and it's aware that we're eating, and and it wants wants food from our table. And my dad had a pretty strict rule. Of course, as little kids, what did we want to do? Cute dogs, we want to feed the dogs our food. Well, that didn't go over really well with my dad. Uh, He said, no, 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 you eat. (laughs) You eat all you want. We're going to eat all we want, and then if there's any scraps that we're just going to throw into the trash, then the the house pet will will get some. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, now that my parents are a little older and more seasoned and the kids are not there, when the dog scratches at the table, guess what they get? <laughs> the rules have reversed, and uh, I'm, I'm telling my dad, Dad, why are you feeding this dog ice cream and chocolate? You don't you need to do this, you know? Um, so it's a bit of a reverse. But this is kind of the image that Jesus uses. He uses this image of priority. He says, the Jews have the priority in my earthly ministry, and then Gentiles will have priority later, essentially. And the woman's response is amazing. She says, that's right. I understand there's Jewish priority. I understand you're outside of the Jewish homeland. But here's the deal. Even as you're ministering to the Jews, now primarily during your lifetime, me, a Gentile, a non-Jew, even I can receive and benefit from your ministry, even now. She says, even non-Jews can benefit during a time of Jewish priority. And because of her faith, we find out that her daughter is healed. And so he's pushing the limits. The second example is that of a deaf mute man. Let's read that in verse 31 through 37. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. This is a primarily a Gentile region, non-Jew, Greek region. There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Apaphapha, right? Sorry, Herb, I don't have that uh, Aramaic going on, I think, which means be open. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak plainly. 
Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. They said, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. And so here we have the second example of Jesus pushing his ministry limits. Um, We don't know for sure that this man was not a Jew, but we don't think that he was. He was in a region that was primarily uh, non-Jewish, and given the fact that it's here in the text where it is, I think Mark includes it because it's another example of Jesus pushing the boundaries of his ministry to reach those who are non-Jewish ethnically. Uh, The details are fascinating. We don't have time to talk about it, but what seems kind of gross to us, like I don't know if you really want anybody to spit on their hand and then stick it on your tongue— Maybe if you couldn't talk, you would want Jesus to do that. We kind of look at that and are like, oh, but he was communicating to the guy what he was going to do. He said, I'm going to heal your ears and I'm going to make you speak properly. He's communicating to him, I think, in a very compassionate way, showing him what he intends to do. The story ends with they're amazed, he's healed, and they have this confession. He's done all things well. Now, before we begin to apply this and to think about what in the world this means for us, um, I, won't, I have to point out, because we'll see two other Im- examples, two other miracles. This is what I call a picture miracle. We're going to get two more in the Gospel of Mark. It's a picture miracle, and that is, it's intended to be a picture of the disciples at that time, I believe. At that time, they needed to have their spiritual ears opened, and they needed to have their spiritual tongues loosed so that they could speak properly and hear properly about who Jesus was. Remember, in this section, the disciples, and it's going to get worse, they just look like idiots. (laughs) They look like they don't understand a thing. They see all of this stuff, and they experience all of this stuff, and numerous times he's like, do you not understand? Do you not hear? Is your heart hardened? This is a picture miracle. It's a picture of the disciples. They don't quite hear properly yet. They don't quite speak properly yet, but they're going to. They're going to. And so, in sum, Jesus has explained why he can push the limits of his ministry to the Gentiles. He's given us two examples. You know, Jesus pushed the limits of his ministry in his culture and his day. And I would suggest to you that as we begin to think about applying that to my life and to your life, I think the application is this. Jesus pushed the limits of his ministry, and we need to as well push the limits of our ministries. And so let's think about that. There were certain limits then, and it was cultural, it was ethnic, it was religious in those days. There were limitations that Jesus needed to overcome, and he needed to have the 12 overcome so that he could have the ministry then and in the future that he needed to. So let me suggest several Gentile-like barriers, some limitations that as we begin to think about how we can push the limits of our ministry here at Grace Bible and in your personal life, My hope and my prayer is that as Jesus trained the 12 to see beyond what they knew, to see beyond the borders of of the Jewish homeland, hopefully we too can have our eyes opened and that we can begin to be challenged to minister and to reach to people that maybe, quite frankly, we've not. And so what are some of the limitations that we need to push through? I've suggested several, and the first one uh, is money. Money barriers. Thinking as a church and thinking individually, sometimes money can be a barrier. It can be a limitation. Uh, when I first got here uh, some five years ago in May, I think, five years ago in May, one of the first things that I heard from people outside of the church is that, oh, you're a Grace Bible Church. That's the rich church. That's what they told me. That's the rich church. And I thought, 
you should come look at our budget. <laughs> I don't think we're the rich church. But for some reason, there is a, a, the idea that we are wealthy, that we are a rich church. And that can be, that can be a hindrance. And so I want to ask us, are we willing to engage those who may not quite be as affluent as us, whose home may not be quite as decorated as well, or whose car may not be as well kept, whose clothes may be a little worn uh, out, more worn out than ours? Because that can be a barrier in this culture and this community. Money. Are you willing to go beyond into different social classes, into those who may have a little bit more than you do, or may have a little bit more, uh, less than you do. Money. Second one is a social. It can be a social barrier, a social limitation. What I mean by this is sometimes there are those in our community or maybe at, at work or beyond our community that they're just socially awkward. I don't know how else to say it. People, they're the kind of people that when you get uh, away from them, people talk about them behind their back because they're just weird. They're socially awkward. They just don't quite speak or, and communicate correctly. What about those kind of people? How are we doing? How are you doing? How am I doing with communicating with those kind of people? Maybe, maybe it's, it's not that. Maybe it's just somebody who's not in your stage of life. They uh, have young kids and you have older kids. You don't have any kids at all and they have teenagers. There are life circumstances that can be a barrier as we try to communicate and share the gospel and engage people. So how are you doing? Think about who you connect with here at the church. Think about who you relate to outside of the church. Most often, it's those within our own kind of social uh, realm, people who are like us. Not that that's necessarily wrong, but when we fail to engage those who may be our neighbors, I've got neighbors who are, I don't know, they're probably in their 80s, and uh, I'm in my 30s. And while there are all sorts of barriers there, that doesn't mean that I shouldn't go have coffee and eat cookies with them and share the gospel. I may feel a little uncomfortable because there's such an age gap. What are we going to talk about? That doesn't mean that I shouldn't. Morality barrier. Sometimes I think for those of us who are Christians, there is a morality barrier to those who are outside. And what I mean by that is that they just don't hold the same morals that we do. We feel uncomfortable because they're using language that we would never use. They're talking about things and issues that make us feel uncomfortable because they may not be morally acceptable. Maybe they're the kind of people that you look at their life and you say, I don't agree with all of your lifestyle choices. That's not how I would raise my kids. That's not what I would do on Saturday or Sunday night. Um, there's a morality barrier, but that doesn't mean that we should not engage those. In fact, Jesus, it's said of Jesus that he was a friend of sinners. And I want to ask myself if people look at me and say, that guy's a friend of sinners. Is that true of you? When people look at you, that they would say, that guy is a friend, that gal is a friend of sinners. I find it really fascinating. As a pastor, sometimes it can actually be a hindrance when I'm talking with people uh, who don't know me. Because we, you know how it is, like, I'm at the pool or something, and I'm talking with somebody, and we're like, yeah, chit-chatting, where are you from? Oh, I'm from, I grew up in Texas, yada, yada. Eventually, it comes out, well, where, where are you from, or what do you do? And I say, oh, well, I'm a pastor. <clears throat> Imagine what that normally does to that conversation, <laughs> right? Especially, and this happens a ton, we're just chit-chatting, you know, usually it's with the men, and they're using language that's, you know, not exactly clean, and uh, it's it, it doesn't bother me. I'm, I'm engaging them, you know, and, and, and they find out that I'm a pastor, and they, they get just like white face, you know, <laughs> like, um, I'm sorry, you know, and people apologize. I'm sorry. I'm like, 
bro, I'm just a, I'm just a man, you know? Um, you don't need to be apologizing to me, right? Um, but it often cuts off. Uh, it's a barrier, morality barrier. Fourth, race. Race can be a barrier. Um, it's, it's no secret that Cisna Park and the surrounding areas, at least Cisna Park here, we're mostly ethnically white. That's what we are, and that's fine. But the truth of the matter is, is that there are people who live here in the surrounding areas who aren't of the same race that we are. And so something that I've noticed as I've lived here, um, I don't know if I want to call it racism, but there's just a sense that they're not welcome. That's just my take. It's not gospel. It's my take. But I want to ask, does that exist in the church? God, I pray that that does not exist in my heart, and I pray it does not exist in your heart, because race can be a barrier. It was a huge barrier in this day, Gentile and Jew. It can be a barrier even today. So I want to ask, if somebody who was not ethnically white came and participated in the life of our church, would they feel welcome? Not just like would we treat them rightly, but like would they be incorporated into the life of the church? I don't know if you know this about me, and I'm, I'm almost done. But preachers preach. I grew up in South Texas, and uh, in deep South Texas. And deep South Texas is predominantly Hispanic in population. And I grew up in a town by the name of Banquete. Uh, that's how the white folks say it. <laughs> it's actually Benquete. That's, that's, that's how those who are Hispanic would say it. And so I said it wrong. Um, but I grew up in South Texas to where I was the minority. Um, I went to a high school um, that, I'm guessing, 90% Hispanic, maybe. I don't know. Guess, 85. I'm not sure. It was largely Hispanic. And so I grew up minority. And so I think I have a little different perspective on what it means to be minority and what it means to be accepted in a culture where you, you don't look like them. And growing up, there were certain families and certain people that I knew, even though they were Hispanic and I was white, they accepted me. And I just knew it. I felt it. I was accepted. And there were some that I just knew that regardless of what I did, I would not be accepted. And I want to ask, how would people feel? Here. Fourth, and finally, the my church barrier. I don't know what else to call it other than the my church barrier. It's something that Dennis and Rebecca touched on, and I appreciate that. They didn't know they were supposed to, but they did, and it worked out in God's providence. But the my church barrier is essentially this. We all, including myself, including myself, we can become very comfortable with our church. Like, we can just become very comfortable with those who are around us, with those who have come to church for a long time, or maybe not, but they've, they've gotten engaged in the life of the church. And we can become so very comfortable that we fail to maybe engage those who want to become a part of the life of the church. Maybe they've come for six weeks. Maybe they've come for six months. Maybe they've come for three years, but they just don't quite feel connected yet. This is an issue. It's the my church barrier. And I've thought about this and I've prayed and I've talked a lot about this. Are we inviting them to lunch? Are we engaging them to be a part, not just of our church, but of our lives? Are we asking uh, them, hey, missed you last, last week. Where you been? Are we engaging them? Are we trying our best to make them a part of the life of the church? There is certainly responsibility on their end to do that. But there's a responsibility on our end as well. And my fear my fear, and I hope it's not true, my fear is that we're happy for people to come and to sit in our pews, but we really don't want them to be a part of our lives. And so my hope is that we can overcome this barrier both in my life and the life of the church 
that those who want to be a part of grace would be fully incorporated into what we do. These, in my opinion, these six areas, and there are certainly more, these are how we can push the limits of our ministry. Wrapping up, Jesus pushed the limits of his ministry. He pushed the 12 to think bigger and broader than what they were at the time. Pushing the limits can be hard. When our kids push the limits, it's hard on us. But when Jesus pushes the limits, it can also be hard on us. In fact, it can be even harder. And so my hope and my prayer today is that Jesus, uh, through his message and through me, has pushed our ministry limits just a little bit. And so what I want to do is I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to be done. We're going to go eat or go do whatever we want. But I just want to spend just a quick minute, just a quick minute in prayer. And I'm going to ask you to do the same. So if you would bow your heads and close your eyes, I'm going to invite you, as I am me, just to think about what are some of the limits in our own personal ministry. Maybe there's some of the five or six that we've listed. If we sense that this is a real limit for us, that we would have a repentant heart and ask God to give us grace to go into Gentile lands, so to speak, to reach the Syrophoenician woman's or the deaf, mute man, and have compassion and push the limits of our ministry. So let's invite you to do that just for a minute. And then we'll wrap up. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters now. As this can be a hard message, but pushing the limits can be a challenge, but it's a good challenge because, Father, we have seen as these 12 men had these ministry limits pushed that when the time came and you died and rose from the dead and you ascended on high and it was their turn to be engaged in ministry, that they did this, not perfectly, but well. And we see as we look in the Gospel of Acts that they went forth, they engaged Jews and they engaged non-Jews and they engaged everybody equally, overcoming many barriers for the gospel of Christ. I pray for my own life that you would help me to see the limitations that I have on my ministries and how I can broaden my ministry scope. And I pray for our church that we would be able to overcome these limitations, that we would allow Jesus Christ to push our ministry limits so that we would engage all sorts of people for the good and glorious gospel of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would be with us now as we eat, as we travel, and uh, as we watch the Super Bowl. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.